Sam Manicum. Ted Simon. Justin Vance. Simon Paby. Bill Bragoon. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snell. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Graham Jarvis. Quentin Smout. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. James Barkman is driven to enjoy life to the absolute fullest. He's one of those rare people that seems to have already gotten his head around the concept that life is short and every day should be lived as your last. When he was growing up, James had a friend that had always talked about someday he would ride from Alaska to Ushuaia. So when he finally decided he was going to do the trip, he fired off a message to James and said, the trip is about to become a reality. Are you in or are you out? James jumped at the opportunity, but to add to the adventure, James then suggested that he and two other friends that were going to take this trip make this into a combined motorcycle trip slash mountain climbing expedition. So they needed to pack everything for riding their motorcycles, as well as everything they would need for high altitude climbing. Packing solutions were unique. Schedules ranged from riding against all odds through wet and cold and terrible weather to hanging out for months at a time, camping, climbing. The adventure is peppered with excitement, tension, and at least one near encounter with death. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. All right. My name is James Barkman. I was born and raised in a small town in Pennsylvania, and now I live in San Luis Obispo, California on the Central Coast. I'm a photographer and multimedia journalist, as well as uh, alpinist, surfer, motorcycle enthusiast. I suppose I wear a few different hats, but I am a photographer and uh, journalist by trade. James, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. I'm stoked to be here. Nice to have you on. And and you were just telling me you just crawled out of the ocean this morning. <laughs> I guess I did. Well, you didn't, you didn't yeah. exactly say it that way, but that's what I pictured. <laughs> yeah, I slipped out of the ocean just oh, about yeah. 20 minutes ago. Right, because you're <laughs> surfing, right? I was surfing this morning, yeah. I live right here along the ocean, basically a stone's throw, so... When I'm not gone or traveling for work or other things, I just try to surf as much as possible here. <laughs> it, it sounds like quite an exciting uh, trade that you're in, quite an exciting job that you do. But first, tell me, what do you know about ostriches? <laughs> uh, funny you ask. I was born on this ostrich farm. We had, I man, I couldn't even tell you how many ostriches, but... For a while in the 90s, it was kind of this industry that blew up and 
ostriches were going crazy. We were shipping them to China. People were spending a lot of money for good ostriches. <laughs> and I was just a kid. So my job was to feed them and water them. So most of the animals we had, like ostriches, cows, horses, sheep, goats, kind of the typical farm animals. Um, when you're a kid, you don't really realize how special it is. It's kind of annoying because it's the it's all the chores that you're supposed to do. So I was always a little afraid of them because the males get pretty territorial and they can kill you really easily. But I had one ostrich that I took care of that I named Gabby and we were great friends. I could go in the pen with her. I could pet her velvet neck. <laughs> so that's about all I know. <laughs> no, but I can tell there's a deep love there. I, and I think the thing that did it was the description love, yeah. of her velvet neck. That that really says it oh. right there. So you do have a love for <laughs> ostriches. I've never spoken to anyone who's grown up. Well, even dealt with ostriches. As a matter of fact, when I said ostriches, I wasn't even sure I was saying it correctly. I wasn't sure if it was a different <laughs> No, you thing. did great. For plural, you know, you say ostriches differently. But um, that's that's really unique. Were they buying the ostriches like to eat or is it the eggs? Yeah, it's a little of both. So essentially it's the meat, the, the trade is the meat, the leather, and then the eggs. So the eggs are equivalent to two dozen chicken eggs. So I grew up on a pretty big fam with a pretty big family. And we just drill one of those eggs with a drill bit and, you know, drain it into a huge pan and feed the whole family of eight of us with wow. one ostrich egg. <laughs> wow, and then uh, mostly we would sell the ostrich meat uh, or sell the ostriches and they'd get processed or butchered elsewhere. But um, the leather was really cool. It's like, I've, I've got a few things, a few ostrich leather um, items, but it's it's got like the bumps where the feathers are plucked. So it's kind of a unique type of leather for, you know, boots, whatever else you make leather out of. So is, is was growing up on an ostrich farm, well, you, I mean, for you, it'd be normal, right? Because I, I know what that thing is like when, however you grow up, you think that that is normal. We all do this. But do you think that had anything right. to do with sending you off in the trajectory that you're on now in life? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. I think there's a lot of things from my upbringing that probably led me to make the decisions I have. Um, I think I grew up pretty rural, so we, there's just a lot of freedom to do whatever you want. Like me and my friends would saddle horses and gallop for miles whenever we felt like it, or we'd shoot guns or go hunting, uh, rip around in the fields, like drive the four wheelers around. There's just a lot of freedom. So I think that gives you or raises you with the sense of independence. And then I was actually homeschooled as well. So I think that helped me develop uh, more of a confidence to be independent and just to carve my own path and figure it out. So I think in my career, I've been freelance almost the entirety of it. And uh, I think a lot of those things from my upbringing probably helped me or helped establish me where I am now. You know, it's hard to put a finger on that stuff, but it's a good mm -hmm. question. And I recognize some of those things as being helpful, I'm sure. Being a photographer has to be tough particularly nowadays, because, you know, photography, I mean, everybody's out shooting photographs now. And it seems like, I mean, mm -hmm. even when digital, do you remember film? I mean, as, as, as it being used on a daily basis or? No, absolutely. I mean, my family or my dad shot with the 
35 millimeter SLR, you know, all the family photos, you'd always forget right. to wind it. It was classic. <laughs> and he would have these slideshow nights where he'd share all the photos from, you know, his early twenties. And, uh, he did a lot of cool stuff back in the day. So I just remember like having all these slideshow nights, we'd gather all our friends and, you just go through like three or four carousels, right? You, you probably remember those things oh, or maybe you don't. I lo- oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah, I love that. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. So we'd go through those and every photo, you know, he'd kind of stop and talk about it for 10, 15 minutes. And then other people would share their carousels and share stories from their photos. And I think that's the first time that I was like, man, I, I just want to, I want to take photos and, and I want to share them with people and tell stories, you know? So I think a lot of my work is kind of documentary style editorial. I just, I, I mean, I do a lot of commercial work, commercial work for my bread and butter, but what I'm always trying to do is more of the documentary style stuff where there's just stories behind everything, right? Whether it's photo or video or writing, my goal is to tell stories that, um, captivate people. So I think growing up and having those memories and experiences with my dad and his friend sharing all their photos kind of lit a fire in me to do the same thing in my own way, I suppose. That what you're describing there, sitting there watching the, the, the slides being projected. I had the same experience with my uncle and it was really powerful for me as well. There's, there's just something that's so magical about it. And that's kind of what I was leading to when I was saying about how it must be a little difficult nowadays to, to make a living because back then photography was kind of elitist in a way. It's certainly that way. I mean, your dad was shooting transparencies Mm -hmm. obviously, but it's changed it to the fact that, or to the point that everyone has a camera on their smartphone and I mean, look at these smartphones, what they can do now. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the cameras on them are just incredible. So it must be kind of tough and a bit, a bit of a leap for you to look at photography and say, Hey, I'm going to make a living at this. How did you, Mm -hmm. how did you do that? Well, it's, there was a lot that happened. I'll do my best to articulate how I feel like I started, but I know I had these dreams of, you know, doing traveling and um, pursuing the passions that I had and telling stories about all of them. And it seemed a little far-fetched coming from my small Pennsylvania hometown where I didn't know anybody that did that. I mean, I think the only photographers I ever knew were people that just did like family photos and weddings and portraits. Right. In my mind, like I couldn't look to anyone that I knew to, um, to model my self after. So it was a little intimidating and, um, pretty foreign in the area that I was from. Like people kind of get into the trades and are more blue collar. And, um, it was just, yeah, I didn't really know. I had these dreams, but I didn't know what to do about it. So I worked, I was working a job for a number of years. I was managing, um, a shop, like a manufacturing shop and just had these dreams. I'm like, well, either I'm going to take a stab at this stuff or I'm going to dream about it. So I quit my job. I moved into my van, uh, which was a 1976 VW bus. And I kind of just hit the road for a month or so with a friend and just started shooting photos and 
trying to, you know, like invest in this dream that I had. And I was like, maybe it'll only happen for a year and then I'll go to college and get a real job. My dad wanted me to be a doctor, you know, it's <laughs> a good choice. I was kind of like, yeah, yeah. Now's the time to take a stab at this thing. So I did that. I hit the road for a while, um, like moved out of my apartment, lived in the VW bus and it was pretty magical. And then I, uh, right around that time, I landed this internship with a photographer here in San Luis Obispo, California, which is why I came out here in the first place. His name was Chris Burkhardt, and he's kind of a surf lifestyle, commercial, uh, a lot of other things, photographer, pretty successful. And I just drove out here and started working with him, which was kind of a maybe a lucky break, you could say. Mm-hmm. So for the summer... For half a year, I worked with him. I got to do a lot of cool projects. Uh, went to Alaska, went around the U.S., assisting and second shooting and um, just kind of learning the ropes and figuring out how it even works, you know, like how this photo business and the industry works. So I learned a lot from Chris. He's a good friend and he taught me a lot, helped me a lot and kind of figured out, you know, how to navigate this crazy industry. Um, so that's kind of where I got a foothold, I'd say. And then just been doing freelance all this time. I think there's always a gap between what you want to do and what you have to do in freelance, in the freelance world, especially with photo, at least for me, not with everyone. But there's kind of a lot of projects that I'm like, well, I got to pay the bills. So I'm going to take this project, even though it's like some weird commercial, you know, something that I'm not really proud of. I wouldn't want to share. And then there's stuff that I am really proud of. In fact, um, most of this year I've been working in Myanmar or Burma, um, filming a documentary series of this organization that works there in the front line, the war zones. And it was kind of a dream. It's exactly the type of work I want to do. You know, it's, um, in a war zone, you're getting shot at. It's awesome. (laughs) <laughs> so that's something I, I am really proud of. And sometimes, you know, the perfect storm kind of works out where you're like, you kind of take a step back and think about how I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And then there's other projects that are a little more of a drag, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> you said your hobbies are surfing and climbing. What else is in there? Well, I love motorcycles a lot. I spent a lot of miles on the saddle of a motorcycle. Um, yeah, I love surfing, love climbing. Uh, I love hunting. I mean, I grew up skateboarding. I grew up kind of just cliff jumping, doing parkour, just a lot of that type of stuff. So yeah, I guess I have a few interests, but I think my greatest passion is probably surfing and like alpine climbing. Mm. You, um, you've done a big trip. You just mentioned there that you, you did a big trip on your bike. When did you start riding bikes, motorcycles? I was a bit of a late bloomer. Uh, I think when I was maybe 17 or 18, I got my first bike, um, Kawasaki, like street bike, man. I forget what, this is kind of embarrassing that I forget what it was, but uh, I didn't grow up racing or, you know, riding MX or anything. I always begged my parents to let me get a dirt bike and (laughs) race or ride, but 
we just had a four wheeler, which is four wheelers don't count. So I think when I was 17, I started riding and then um, started getting more dual sports. And I'm just really intrigued by like longer dual sport trips. And um, it's just a perfect marriage of covering distance, but also still getting to ride technical stuff. And that's definitely more of the riding that I do. Uh, right now I have a DRZ 400. So it's kind of a bit of a, you know, it's like the, the street and dirt enduro. It doesn't, does everything well, I guess, <laughs> depending mm-hmm. who you ask. But yeah, I, I love dual sports kind of more than anything else. And that's, that's what I get stoked on as far as riding goes. How do you find yourself riding from um, Alaska to Swaya? How did I find myself? Yeah. Well, I grew up with these two guys and, and we, we all grew up in Pennsylvania and we always talked about this trip. My friend Alan was in college and he's like, man, when I graduate college, I'm going to get my diploma and hop on my dirt bike and ride to Alaska and down to Argentina. And he always said that as a teenager and as we got older and, you know, you talk about a lot of stuff as a kid. So we we're like, cool, man, whatever. Then one day I had moved to California by this point and was actually living in Oregon and Washington in my van, cruising around surfing, climbing. He calls me and says, Hey, I'm doing this trip with or without you. Do you want to come or not? So of course I wanted to come. Initially it was going to be like, you know, just the classic Pan Am trip ride from dead horse to Ushuaia. And then I sort of helped or sort of convinced everyone to turn it into a climbing trip as well, because we were going to be going by all these mountain ranges, Alaska range, you know, British Columbia, the U S Mexico, Andes, you know, the Patagonia. So we sort of decided to turn it into like a Alpine motorcycle trip. So we made our own paneers to fit all our climbing stuff. It was a little out of control. Uh, loading all the mountain stuff as well as everything else we needed on DR650s, late 90s DR650s that we got from Craigslist for 1500 bucks a piece. <laughs> Is that, was that part of it? Is you trying to find cheap bikes or something? Yeah, I mean, we were all super broke. I was 23. Uh, my friends were 22. My other friend was 22. I think Jeremy was 24. And, you know, we're just, basically kids and my friend just got out of college. So he was definitely broke. (laughs) He actually got his diploma and literally hopped on his dirt, hopped on the DR and rode to Alaska. So he kind of, he he wasn't lying when he said that, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I mean, we were pretty broke and we, we chose DR 650s because they're the same from 96 to current year in South America. The cops are still riding them, you know, for their, they're like the cop bike. You see them everywhere. So mm-hmm. it's a, easier to get parts and it's air cold, single thumper. I mean, it's kind of, I, I love that bike. It's, it's pretty bare bones, but it was a great bike. And I went, I rode 40,000 miles on a $1,500 DR650 and never had any major issues, which is kind of wild. Yeah. So great bikes. Yeah. That's how it started. So why, why is, was your friend, enamored with the Pan American? Like what, did he see something on it or what, what caught his eye? He always told me that 
he wanted to do the hardest thing he could think of after college because he was working pretty hard, like paying his way through school. So he's working while he's going to school, um, getting a mechanical engineering degree. And he was just a little pent up and was like, I got to do something hard. And he, he said that riding a dirt bike, riding a dual sport from dead horse to Australia seemed like the most challenging thing he could think of, like the most realistic, challenging thing mm-hmm. he could think of, you know, that he could actually pull off. And so that's how that started. He's a like endurance athlete, long distance runner, incredible skier. Uh, Um, Everything that I climb with, everything challenging I climb with, we climb together. So, um, I mean, we've skied 7,000 meter stuff together in the middle of Pakistan. We've nearly died together in the mountains. So he's just kind of that type of personality. And um, yeah, that was his dream. Wow. And then you turn it into a, a climbing trip, which sort of ups the ante again. But um, what about all the stuff? Like you're talking about like custom panniers that you're building. I've seen photographs of your of your panniers, which are really kind of cool looking. Actually, I like them, but they're really long. <laughs> they were 40 liters on each side. So it's like a 40 liter kind of rectangle leather sort of setup. Yeah. So 80, 80 liters on the back. We had a hundred liter duffel with most of it just climbing gear um on you know on the rack and then we had about 40 liters on the tank bags that were kind of just like these leather satchel type things we made as well so it was a lot of gear i think the challenge the the most challenging thing was when you're that loaded you know you're limited as far as like the technical riding goes because you're not riding that light mm-hmm. and then when it comes to the alpine stuff we had the you know as minimal of an alpine kit in terms of gear and stuff as we could afford. So you're kind of limited in the mountains and you're kind of limited on the bike, but I think we did pretty well. We did a lot of really challenging dirt stuff. And I think one reason that we went off road so much is because these panniers just didn't break. I remember high siding in Bolivia, 65, 70 miles an hour at 14,000 feet and just getting absolutely ragdolled and the panniers ripped off. Everything got yard sailed, bike went end over end. I thought I broke every bone in my body somehow didn't. And I just put the panniers back on and they were fine, you know, indestructible. And I can't even remember how many times we wrecked on them. Pretty significant wrecks. So I've, I've done other trips and other types of motorcycle luggage and panniers and stuff just starts breaking pretty quick. And so those things were ideal for pulling something like this off and just being able to ride and wreck and lay the bike down. And they're leather. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. not ostrich leather, are they? <laughs> no, but I wish that they were. Oh, it's funny. <laughs> it would probably be extra expensive, I think, if that was the case. So so you, you did you make these? Yeah, so Alan designed them. Um, he's kind of that, he's like the engineer of the group, right? So. Mm-hmm. He's like, we need, we kind of built or assembled all the gear that we had and like what we needed. We're like, all right, we need something this big because we couldn't really afford to get luggage or paneers and then fit everything in. Oh, I see. So we had everything we needed. He kind of like built stuff like prototypes um, based off like what we felt like we needed. And uh, we actually had like Moscow uh, mounting plates that we fit into a rack. So that was so they like mounted to Moscow plates, which was pretty convenient. Uh, but otherwise, we built everything ourselves. And then at the time, I had just started like this leather startup with some friends, 
And uh, we were making leather goods like backpacks and laptop sleeves or just, you know, your classic leather goods stuff. So we had access to this leather shop and a really skilled craftsman, uh, my business partner. So we brought in these prototypes and then they just whipped them up. (laughs) So it was kind of a joint effort. Um, But um, yeah, we built the prototypes and were involved with the design and process and then um, pulled into my into the resources of my startup to actually make them. Yeah. You'd think you'd have to know somebody to get something like that made because that'll end up being more expensive than mm-hmm. I imagine like leather panniers that they'd be more expensive than a, a regular pannier. No doubt. If you had to buy them commercially. Are, Absolutely. Are, yeah. And we use really thick leather. So um, buying sheets of that stuff is not cheap for sure. Much less the time put into, you know, assembling and sewing everything up. Yeah. That makes sense. Are you still doing the leather thing now? I actually sold out a few years back, but they're still going strong. Uh, oh, wow. So it was a great experience and like a cool resume piece, you know, not something that I want to do forever, but it was awesome to be involved with that, learn a lot with some friends and yeah, they're, they're doing great. And are they making leather panniers for motorcycles now? <laughs> they are not, but <laughs> I bad. hope that they do. <laughs> and if you really want some, you could probably reach out and they, I mean, they have the design sitting there somewhere. <laughs> well, something that's tough. I mean, it does get you, get you, get you thinking, but let's talk about that trip you did. So you, you met your friends. I, I think you guys all sort of came from different places, didn't you? Uh, we actually grew up in the same hometown. So no, but I mean, as right teenagers, there, did you guys all ride up to, to meet somewhere? Oh, you're right. Yeah. So Life was a little crazy for me leading up to this trip. Um, I was actually in Afghanistan on an assignment for a while, like right before we left. So I barely found my bike on Craigslist, um, flew down to Santa Barbara to, I mean, we were looking all over the country. I'm like, I had a plane ticket booked for Phoenix, Arizona, because I found a DR650 there that was in my price range and seemed, you know, low enough miles, whatever. And then I found a bike in Santa Barbara. The trip is only a month out and we still didn't have our bikes. I think wow. you know, part of it was just, we had this dream and we were all pretty broken. Like we didn't have time to wait and, you know, spend years building out the route and the bikes were kind of like, we got to do this now or never. So <laughs> it was a little scrappy, but I went to Afghanistan on this assignment. I came back. Um, I left from Oregon where I had some close friends. Um, I was living in my VW bus at the time. So I dropped the bus off there, left from Oregon. My friends left from Pennsylvania. The second he grabbed his diploma from Penn state, um, college, they actually drove to Pittsburgh and ran a marathon that same day, got back on the bikes, kept riding across the U S got into Canada, getting nuked by rain and like you know, the planes and uh, Canadian planes. It was pretty tough from what they tell me. Mm-hmm. And then we all met up at the start of the Alaskan highway and uh, somehow met up at like, I think five minutes apart. We left at different days coming from thousands of miles away and ended up at the same cafe where we had planned days and days before and, you know, five minutes apart. Wow. We didn't really have service up there. It was kind of serendipitous. <laughs> and then we rode uh, from from there. We all rode together. Uh, we had a deadline to climb Denali. And we had like 
you know, the meetings book and the flight books on the way to Talkeetna, where we would stay and fly out of Alan's bike, fried his CDI on the highway mm. right across the border in Alaska. So basically, of course, just lost spark. And generally, like a CDI is kind of the last thing you're going to check. When does that ever fry? So we got picked up by a kind passerby, of course, stressing about this climb that we had trained for and had a deadline to get there. So we ended up get hitchhiking Alan's bike. And then um, Jeremy and I, the other guy, rode ahead, bought all the food and all the supplies. We met up in Tapitna and we pretty much flew out the next day to Denali and climbed that as the first mountain of the trip. So it was it was pretty fast-paced uh, uh, maiden voyage, I suppose. So do, do, does the climbing add a... Like I was thinking with stress about, a, about making a climbing trip is that you've got to take all your gear with you, but you just mentioned like meeting a reservation. So does each climb have to be reserved and they're all times and dates you're heading for? Not necessarily, but with Denali, there's a permit process to go through. Um, you got to meet with the Rangers so they can assess your skill level and, um, grant you the permit to climb. Um, there's, you know, like you need to get the supplies together. You need to figure out your pack and all these things. So there's a few things to go over other mountains. It's, uh, I, I think all the rest of the climbs that we did, it wasn't necessarily that there wasn't that much red tape. There's just small windows of weather that you have to be there for. So in that sense, like after uh, Dead Horse, actually, we just rode straight to uh, Mount Robson in British Columbia because we saw a weather window coming up that was going to close. It was like a three, four day weather window. And it just was the end of the season. And I think it would just be, or we figured just be snowing every day for the rest of the season. So we would either climb then or never. Right. So in that sense, we just hauled ass down to British Columbia and climb Mount Robson after dead horse kind of still fried from that trip. Um, so there is, <laughs> there is stuff like that, you know, but Robson actually doesn't, there wasn't any red tape really. You can kind of just go climb it and check in at their ranger station with a simple permit. Right. And what sort of risk level are these climbs you're doing? Um, I would say Denali is Mount Denali in Alaska. It's the highest mountain in North, in North America. Uh, it's pretty cold because of its proximity to the Arctic circle and, you know, just being in Alaska in the middle of nowhere, it kind of creates its own weather system because of its prominence. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, people die on Denali a lot. Uh, I think it's always something unfortunate, like a slip. You, you might be in a place where it's not that dangerous, but if you slipped, you're just going to fall and never stop. Or if you yeah. slip in the wrong place, you're going to fall and they'll never find you. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you get hit with really bad weather and you get frostbite and something happened and you're stuck somewhere cold. I mean, there's a million ways that people get hurt or lose their lives up there, but I'd say it's pretty significant. I mean, as in terms of risks, there's a lot of big crevasses, big objective hazards. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, th I think some of the other climbs we did had a lot, had a considerable amount, uh, considerable more risk than Denali. Like Mount Robson was pretty scary. Uh, there's just a lot of 
kind of running the gauntlet type of situations where you're, you know, you're, there's avalanches ripping here and there and you're kind of just going through it because there's no other way down. So stuff like that, I think it, it's always hard to decide like how much risk is too much. Obviously, if you get killed or really hurt, then it wasn't worth it. But mm. up until that point, if you can tow the line and get right up underneath it, underneath that threshold, then of course it's worth it and you made the right call. So I think growing as a climber and as an alpinist, that's just sort of a different type of experience for everyone to figure out how they're going to navigate that, you know, like how much risk they're willing to accept when you're with a group of people, you know, how much risk are you all willing to accept? So there was other times on the trip where we definitely ran into some sketchy stuff in Peru we actually got stuck in an avalanche and fortunately I wasn't buried my friend that was climbing above me was buried That's a bit of a cliffhanger, isn't it? Stopping right there. Stay with us. We've got a lot more coming up. And I've got two things that I want to tell you about that I know you're going to be interested in. So have a listen, and then we'll be right back with more from James. Well, a number of years back, actually before Charlie and Ewan even decided to do Long Way Round, a fellow named Rene Cormier decided to ride his motorcycle around the world. His budget was $25 a day, and he figured if he stuck to that budget, he could last about three years. Well, Rene fell in love with motorcycle travel. It wasn't his first travel. Like He'd been out on a bicycle before. He, he'd done other travel, but the motorcycle travel really did it for him. And what began as sort of this extended vacation soon became a lifestyle as Rene ended up spending four and a half years on the road. When he returned, he wrote a great book called The University of Gravel Roads. Now, with all that experience from traveling the world, etc., when Rene returned, he decided that rather than get a real job, so to speak, that he would set up a tour company and show other riders what makes him so passionate about motorcycle travel in the places that he's been. So, Renadian Adventures was born from that. Renadian, Renadian, which I, th I think is a melding of Rene's name and the fact that he's Canadian, Rene, and then Canadian. Ah, don't quote me on that. Anyway, that was 13 years ago. Renadian Adventures has grown into a mature adventure company. They offer trips in Africa, Mongolia, South America, Scotland, New Zealand, and in Canada as well. He shares his favorite places, his favorite routes, his favorite rides, uh, the people that he meets, all unique to Rene in particular, and, and somebody, of course, with that extensive experience traveling. Now, you have to realize that there's much more to Rene's travel story. He flew to Mexico when he was 17 years old, alone, with no place to stay, no plan, nothing. He just showed up at the airport. I think he arrived at night, he said, and he had to figure everything out afterwards. And I think that's part of what makes Rene such a great guide is that he started at ground zero and built firsthand knowledge, figuring out every little detail on his own as he went along. 
Renee now has long-term guides and crew that have been with them for years. Group sizes that he runs are under 10 bikes. They do incredible routes, personally selected, upscale boutique accommodations. They've got a chase vehicle. With Renadian, you benefit from that extensive experience that Renee has, but as well his crew has. And some of his crew are local to the areas that you'll actually ride in. And being a guide-owned company, Renadian Adventures is all about creating amazing adventures, lifelong memories. His website is renadian.com. Renadian, just like Renee, and then D-I-A-N, just like you're Canadian, Renadian, Canadian, Renee, Canadian. Anyway, renadian.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, renadian.com. You know, I appreciate a quality build in anything. And you know what I'm talking about. A quality build is when you come across something that looks so well built that it almost looks perfect. Oh, it does look perfect. You know, the, the machining is done right. You can tell it's solid. It's, it's purpose orientated. That's what I see when I look at my Atlas throttle lock. But taking that to the next level is the fact that the Atlas throttle lock actually works even better than it looks. It's a marvel of engineering. There's no doubt. It's an ultra thin design that clamps onto your handlebar in minutes, allowing you the ability to swap it from one bike to another, which is another great feature, I might add. But the Atlas throttle lock really shines when you aren't even looking at it, when you're riding. And that's important. There's two buttons on it, one for engage, the other for disengage. Those two buttons deliver a tactile feel to your thumb when you press it that not only feels like quality, but they let you know exactly what you're doing without having to look down. You don't need to glimpse down, nothing. You engage it, it holds your throttle position. You can relax your fingers, your thumb, your wrist, even your shoulder. I find it relieves the, a lot of stress that builds up in my throttle hand and just makes riding even more fun. It's one of the few accessories that I would instantly add to any bike that I buy, the Atlas Throttle Lock. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. In Peru, we actually got stuck in an avalanche. And fortunately, I wasn't buried. My friend that was climbing above me was buried. Oh. I was able to dig him out. He's about five or six feet down. You know, he was unconscious, not breathing, all blue. It had been quite a few minutes. And I just slapped him as hard as I could, yelled at it, screamed at him at 19,000 feet at 4 a.m. It's all dark, ominous, and cold, right? Gave him mouth to mouth for a long time. And right when I was about to give up, because he wasn't waking up, he kind of came to and started breathing and woke up. So wow. that was one of those experiences where it's, you know, you we made a bad call. And fortunately, we lived to tell about it and survived it. But there's, it could have just as easily been um, fatal. And then, of course, it wasn't worth it. Like we pushed the envelope a little too much. So, through that trip, whether it's riding, you know, we all had close calls on the bike where we almost got smoked, you know, by a semi or I can't even remember how many times it was. It was almost every day sometimes, especially in Latin America. And then with the climbing, there's a lot of risk, of course, like avalanches, stuff whizzing by your head, you know, climbing something where if you fall, you'll die. So, yeah, I, I think that's, we all were pretty synchronized with our skill levels in the mountains and with our uh, perspective on risk, which is rare and um, special to like find someone that you can, or find a team that you can work well together with. And then with riding, I think 
and the whole trip in general, we're like, well, now's the time we're in our twenties, you know, we're about to get real jobs. So let's do it. <laughs> well, life certainly changes, doesn't it? I mean, as you get older, I mean, you're already finding that now, I'm sure it changes the way you look at things. And there's something magical about that era in one's life. I think where you're able to go off and do that, but to find people that you can, you can go with and everybody's in sync, like you're saying for that sort of thing, for the amount of risk in particular, that's unusual. And, um, it had to be pretty good. So your trip, you left Alaska. What was the riding like when you're, when you're heading down from Alaska? It was definitely pretty cold. I remember getting frostbite in dead horse, um, on that ride up and down. We kind of got up there the last or the tail end of summer, it started snowing and it was really miserable. And as you know, when you're riding, the wind chill factor is much lower than the actual temperature mm -hmm. and uh, we didn't have like <laughs> heated grips or anything because we were too poor <laughs> so we just put on big gloves and stuck it out and i just remember like pretty much that whole trip up there you know it's either raining or snowing or sleeting or super cold and muddy so you're covered in mud and i just remembered never feeling my hands like when you stopped i'd have to take my two palms and try to turn the key off Oh. And just, we would I'd beat my hands as hard as I could to get them to warm up, you know, and it's just, it's kind of a new level of misery that I haven't experienced much <laughs> since. Cause in the, like there's other times when you're cold in the mountains, but you're moving and you know, you're not just sitting there stationary. I swear that riding in cold places on a motorcycle is the coldest that a man can ever be, <laughs> yeah. you know? No, I, I think I, I know what you're saying because yeah. it's true though, because you, you can't do anything to warm up. You just get colder and colder and colder. Of course, you know, the dangers of that mm -hmm. being a climber for sure, especially, I mean, if you can't move mm -hmm. your fingers, you're too cold. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be riding, yeah. right? Like, Yeah. And, and the thing is like, there's no, sometimes you don't have an option on that trip. We just realized like, we need to get here by this time and we can't wait this thing out so you just keep going yeah. and that was a lot of the trip was like we can't just stay here we have to get out of here like there's no water there's no gas there's no food like you don't have an option so you just keep riding <laughs> and that was pretty miserable so <laughs> yeah no and i think that's why so many of us have has have experienced what you've experienced you know with getting allowing yourself to get that cold it's like you have no option you whether it's time whether it's darkness coming in whether it, it doesn't matter there's all kinds of different scenarios that you run into where you you find yourself having to push that limit and then you realize you know often in hindsight isn't it and i'm wondering if that mm -hmm. you know that didn't really hit you after that section there in hindsight just how bad that really is for riding conditions <laughs> absolutely yeah it it was really bad <laughs> yeah. I, I mean definitely worthwhile and i'm glad we did it but that was probably the most miserable i've ever been on a motorcycle it's just something about the arctic cold i've been up there again since that trip uh, i actually hunted caribou up just below dead horse the other year and even in a truck, we're like, oh man, it's pretty cold and gnarly. And I'm like, yeah, it, it was pretty bad. <laughs> like thinking back. <laughs> but um, it was pretty cold up there all the way through Canada and the Alaskan highways. Kind of, as you know, it's just damp and rainy and a little miserable, at least that time of year. You rode through the States. Obviously, that was a non issue, correct? Yeah. Um, we. We kind of rode through to the Sierras, uh, like climbed a volcano in Oregon, 
uh, spent time like with friends as we're riding south, right, staying in people's houses, mm-hmm. um, kind of meeting up along the way. Climbed in Oregon. We climbed in the East Sierras. Um, we climbed in Joshua Tree. We actually spent like a month and a half or two months in Joshua Tree, just climbing rock. Oh wow! Because we were a little ahead of the season so our our plan was to move with the climbing seasons right so like we started early season denali we uh we got like all these major uh like points of interest and climbs that we wanted to hit mm-hmm. which we just had the time right so like denali dead horse um british columbia um like the u.s ranges and then we were a little ahead of the what of the season for Mexico, so we decided to just spend time climbing in Joshua Tree and just lived in the BLM land. Would go in and climb rock all day, every day. Come out, live in you know sleep camp in the BLM. Go back in. So uh, crossing into Mexico, we sort of went straight down to Pico de Orizaba. It's a the highest mountain in Mexico, and actually the third highest in North America. So kind of just it was all a lot of the decisions we made were just a matter of like how when do we need to be at this mountain or in this mountain range and like what's our plan you know do we, how much time do we have in between so sometimes like going from dead horse to mount robson in british columbia we just had to ride you know five six hundred seven hundred mile days through rain to get there in time for the weather window other times we had a month to kill because it was too early and the mountain would just be stuck in a cloud, you know? Mm. So you really weren't like bypassing any climbing opportunities. In other words, that was the major goal. Yeah. I think there was times where like Alan found some routes through uh, Nevada and we kind of just loaded some GPX coordinates into our phones and followed this route for hundreds of miles through the middle of nowhere. And so we do stuff like that. That was pretty technical. You know, it's a lot of rock, steep stuff, really deep sand, uh, through Baja that we did a lot of cool stuff. So kind of in between, it was, a, it was sort of a matter of like, how much time did we have between these different climbs? And if we had time, then we would just try to get as technical in terms of the riding as we could, if we had time. Right. So it was, it was a bit of that. Yeah. And are you bumping into other riders that are sort of traveling the same route? I mean, everybody comes together down at the Darien. Are you bumping into other riders as you go? Yeah, we met a lot of cool people. I mean, I think when we would do really obscure routes, you just don't see anyone, of course. Mm -hmm. But once we start getting south, like in Mexico and Central America, you start meeting a lot more people. And of course, in Alaska, like everyone's finishing, you know, going up the Dalton Highway to Prudhoe Bay. So you're running into the people there. Um, but yeah, you meet a lot of incredible people. Uh, as you know, I mean, people riding two up on a little 250 from Argentina, hmm. like meet people that just, you know, have this dream to get on a bike or get on some rig and drive up and down. Like we met this one guy that helps us a lot in Central America, like with a lot of the border stuff and importing bikes he didn't know a single English word and just somehow got into the U S on his bike on his Pan Am trip and learned English on the street. And now he's fluent and oh, has wow. crazy stories 
of the years that he spent doing this. So there's just a lot of incredible characters that it, it almost becomes so commonplace that, you know, it's like everyone that you're rubbing shoulders with is just kind of these wild types of people. Yeah, everybody <laughs> doing cool. their own crazy adventure. Yeah. What, what do the yeah. other riders think of your setup when they see it? Cause you guys all had the same panniers, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. People were, especially guys on, you know, big GSs or bigger dual sports were pretty uh, <laughs> amused. I think <laughs> we looked pretty motley. I mean, we were all carrying big knives. My buddies had big beards. I had a terrible mustache that I tried to grow. It's as good as that was the best <laughs> I could see. <laughs> but from Alaska to the Mexico border, I had a rifle on my bike. And um, just because we we're in a lot of bear country and I don't know. I had this dream of hunting stuff and eating it along the way, which didn't happen. <laughs> uh, I traded the rifle for a lot for a recurve bow, like a traditional bow, and just had a bunch of arrows with broadheads because I was like, "Oh, in Central America, in Latin America, we'll like for sure run into stuff in the jungle that we can kill and eat," which didn't really happen either. But I just had the bow nonetheless. <laughs> so we kind of just had this Mad Max set up you know these homemade paneers and like um scrappy clothes and machetes hanging off of us and ice axes hanging off you know so people were kind of amused i think is the best way to play right but they have to see where you've been and and you know give you some sort of credibility for that yeah i think that there's a lot of street cred that we developed um like riding the pan am is tough enough of course and then when people would hear what we climbed or what routes we took we definitely uh got earned some core points some brownie points with the with the rest of the pan am travelers (laughs) Mm -hmm. where do you think the where did it feel like at the time that the adventure really started did it start right at the very beginning or or is it when you get into central america or, or where yeah i just i feel like it started right away i mean like because I was in Afghanistan right up until I left, I didn't have as much time as I wanted to get my bike dialed. And because my buddy was in college, just, you, you know, he's going through finals training for this marathon. He's trying to run, trying to, you know, get good grades on his finals in college yeah. um, while getting his bike together. You know what I mean? There's just a lot going on. And uh, when I when I started going north, I just had carb issues every day. I actually didn't even have my motorcycle license. Most of my my whole life, I just rode dirty, <laughs> which I probably maybe you should edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think I, like, I think you're safe yeah. at this point, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, right, right. So I went up to um, like Bellingham, I think, and got my permit because I'm like, man, can I get into Canada without a motorcycle license? I don't know how strict they are, right? So I got my permit at least, and they didn't check. I wouldn't have even had to do that, but, um, it was, that was kind of crazy. And then like every day I'm ripping into my carburetor. Like I was just kind of bogging and the bike wasn't running good. And of course your brain's going to worst case scenario. You're like, like, I'm going to have to quit. Like I called Alan, like my bike won't make it. Like I'm out. And and he just convinced me to keep going. (laughs) So it's dumping rain, you know, you're in Canada by yourself trying to, all meet up at the same time, having bike issues that, you know, unless you have the time to rip into it, you're like, is this a lower end issue? Is this a carb issue? Like sometimes it's hard to 
diagnose that stuff, right? So I was kind of panicking. Then when we all met up together, we still had carb issues. And then Alan's CDI fried. And then Denali was crazy. I mean, we had some, like Alan almost died. We, he almost killed all of us on Denali. We were on the summit ridge line, and uh, he tripped and fell and like pulled me off. Like we're all on a rope length, right? Mm-hmm. And there's 10,000 feet drop on one foot drop on one side, 3,000 foot drop on this side. Hang on, 10,000 feet? Like, are you talking like straight down? It's pretty, it's crazy. Yeah. Like it's, you're not stopping. It's wild. Wow. Now, if you fall off the north side of Denali, you won't stop. It's pretty scary. Wow. <laughs> You'll never, they'll never find you. So he's on that ridge line that like, it's like a knife edge that splits the two, right? Drops. Yeah. I mean, someone's probably going to roast me about 10,000 feet, but it's close to it. It's mm-hmm. The north side of Denali is pretty sheer. So you start sliding, falling tumbling he rips me off the wall and i'm we're all just yelling and i'm digging my ice axe and trying to stop us hang on and hang on go a little slower with, on this because you know if i'm not a, you're not a climber you're not gonna follow this so he trips and falls <laughs> he starts going down the slope the rope then is going to pull tight on the next person and then the next person mm-hmm. so who's the who's the first person to feel his line or feel his weight i was next to him on the rope line so basically like you know, when he falls, he's above me because we're climbing this pretty steep face getting to the summit ridgeline. And we're at, you know, 20,000 feet. Your brain doesn't work that well. In fact, there's a quarter of the oxygen available up there than at sea level. So your brain is actually firing at 25% of its mental capacity. It's a weird thing to explain, but you just feel sluggish. Like you're like, what's two plus two? And you're like, uh, you know, it's weird. Right. So He's so all that to say that, you know, not, I don't want to knock on him for tripping. We all make mistakes, but, um, he, I think got hung up in the rope. We were all pretty tired. I see him start falling. And of course the rope is going to go past me and he's picking up speed the whole time. And by the time he, it gets taunt, like he's been flying down this thing. Right. So to paint a picture, like the rope is slack, he's flying by me. It, all of a sudden gets tight, rips me off the wall. And we had two other guys behind us on the rope length. And the problem is like when you fall, you self-arrest with your ice axe is what you call it. So you're trying to stop your momentum. Because the second you start stomach and, and, and striking the ice axe into the surface. Exactly. And if you don't stop yourself pretty quick, you're getting, you're gaining a lot of speed and you'll never be able to stop yourself. So there's kind of this, critical time frame to slow yourself down and if you pull you know someone else off someone else off like three people off then you're all tumbling and people you know a lot of people have died on denali doing this very thing mm-hmm. so fortunately i was able to stop him after we started tumbling and sliding and i found like my ice axe held and i you know, was able to find some ice as I'm sliding down this face before we ripped all the other guys off as well, which I think we wouldn't have been able to stop at that point. So all that to say, like the adventure started right away, I feel like. And actually after Denali, we were still pretty broke. Like we had kind of started this trip, uh, you know, just after college and like we didn't have a lot of money. So we took a break. My one friend, Alan, um, got a fishing job in the Kenai Peninsula and fished for salmon. The other friend got like a dog sledding job um, in uh, Girdwood or Gearwood, I believe, in 
close to like I think close to uh, I'm gonna butcher it. I'm not sure, but up there in Alaska. And I actually got a photo assignment in the U.S. So I flew back down just for the summer and we all worked and then met up again and went to Dead Horse. So it was kind of like one thing after another. I feel like we never had much of a moment to breathe. We're either, you know, like riding to go to another climb or trying to get somewhere in between a weather window or, you know, trying to coordinate like our next leg of the trip and, you know, figure out how to make it all work. So it was a pretty fast paced year and a half. And I think every leg of it had its own set of challenges and adventures and crazy memories. So it kind of just started right out of the gate. <laughs> it, it sounds amazing. It sounds almost unbelievable. You know, one of those adventures is just it's too much, you know, too much going on. So, so what did you do with the Daring Gap? So we really wanted to uh, put our bikes on sailboats and sail down, but we just realized that it was too much money. And then the guy that we kind of heard of that would do this had let some guys out to dr- had left some guys out to dry before, and like the visa stuff didn't really come through. So they ended up, you know, being in Colombia illegally. We didn't want to risk mm-hmm. it, so we just loaded our bikes into a container. We met some other guys in a VW van again that were traveling. And like you said, down around that area, you know, everyone's kind of colliding and either coming north or going south, like the Pan Am travelers. Mm-hmm. Kind of filters everyone down. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a bottleneck. Yeah. So um, we got in on a container with them, saved some money, flew to uh, Cartagena. And then for the next two and a half weeks, we just waited in Cartagena. They told us that the boat would arrive in two days. But every day for two weeks or two and a half weeks, we go to the office and they're like, oh, the boat is lost. We don't know where it is. (laughs) It's lost at sea. Like, what? What does that even mean? We're going to have a fast break. I'm going to tell you about something and then we're going to be back with more. Stay with us. I think most of us understand the importance of being seen on the road. You simply cannot expect car drivers to see you. The fact is, almost every rider has a story about a vehicle pulling out in front of them, and many times that's after what appeared to be making eye contact with the rider, the car driver looking directly at the rider. And what do car drivers say? They say they didn't see the bike. See and be seen is the motto at Cyclops Adventure Sports. And no wonder, because they are riders too. It's a family-owned and operated business of motorcycle riders and enthusiasts. Cyclops designs and sells a huge offering for auxiliary lighting for motorcycles, as well as LED headlight replacements. Hey, if you have one of those bikes you have trouble fitting auxiliary lights on, I was one of those, they've got you covered with these ultra-small but supremely powerful Aurora 2-inch auxiliary lights. They punch a hole in the night and they command attention during the day. And, and an option for them is to get this green or sorry, uh, orange LED ring on the outside. And that ring combined with the light tends to grab your attention more than, than just a light. But anyway, a, a great little added feature. Cyclops Adventure Sports has CAN bus plug and play systems for many bikes. And while you're at their website, look at the Evo Safety Turn Signal System. I absolutely love this. Talk about ultra bright LED brake lights. Basically, what they do is they convert your turn signals front and back into, in the back, an LED brake light. In the front, 
uh, super bright driving lights. And of course they remain your turn signals as well. But um, when you step on the brakes, those LED brake lights, that your turn signals, wow, talk about bright. CyclopsAdventureSports.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. CyclopsAdventureSports.com. So just this past week, I had another rider email me to tell me how great it was to deal with IMS products, just how great they were with, with his particular situation. I'm pleased to hear this stuff, but honestly, I'm not surprised because IMS products has been around since 1976. It's still owned and operated by riders just like us. And because of that, they care. They care about the product they sell. They take pride in their products. They take pride in their customers and having great customer service. IMS products designed from the ground up, a complete line of adventure motorcycle foot pegs for our, our style of riding, right from their large ADV1 and 2 on down to the core series of smaller pegs for the more aggressive dirt rider. IMS foot pegs will change the way you stand on your bike. There is no doubt about it. Giving you control through added leverage and thoughtfully designed ergonomics that don't upset the geometry of your foot reach to the shifter and the rear brake lever. That's important. Anybody can make a, a foot peg larger, but to get it designed correctly, you need to have it properly engineered. You need to have an understanding and a history in motorcycle parts, understanding what is required, and only time does that. Time and dedication, IMS Products has all of that. But on top of that, they use those years of experience in motorcycle racing to get the correct metal, the correct heat treating. So much goes into the making of a quality foot peg. Like I said, IMS Products foot pegs will change your ride and make you a better rider in the dirt. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. We don't know where it is. It's lost at sea. We're like, what? What does that even mean? How does that, how do you lose like a huge shipping container yeah. boat, right? And then the next day, lost, 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 lost. And then one day it showed up. So it it was kind of renegade. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's that's the end of your trip at that point. If you don't, if if it doesn't come back, you're done then really, I would think. Yeah. Like all our bikes and everything we own is lost. They're telling us, you know, yeah, it was a little stressful. (laughs) But it eventually shows up. You get on your bikes and you're heading off, I assume for the next mountain peak. Yeah. We were trying to get to like the, Peruvian Andes. Um, we there's the Andes go all the way to Colombia, but we were pretty hard set on like some of the bigger, higher elevation stuff. And, um, we were tossing around the idea of climbing in Colombia, but our first night on the bikes, we got robbed, uh, pretty good. My Jeremy's bags got like cut into and they stole, you know, like I think a shell jacket or tent, like ice axes and well hang on, set set that up. So so what's the scene? So up until this point, like we had we hadn't paid for or we hadn't stayed in a hostel or hotel except once after Mount Robson uh the whole trip. So we we're kind of committed, like we're camping every night under the stars the whole trip, no exceptions. After Mount Robson, it was really tough. I could, you know, it, it was a hard climb. I could barely walk for five days. So we got a hotel and sat in a hot tub. It was great. We kind of caved. <laughs> but up until Columbia, we had never stayed in a hostel or a hotel or anything. So our first night, we get robbed. 
And uh, we, I guess we were just like too um, naive in assuming that being in this tiny jungle town that, uh, yeah, it would be okay. But I think there was just some local guy that other villagers or other locals said was kind of like a crackhead type of guy. And um, we were staying in uh, like little tiny hotel room thing and had the bikes all, you know, chained together. Like the bags are locked up, but of course it's leather. So someone can cut into it. It's pretty hard to get everything into a room, into the room we were staying in. So we just hit the bikes behind this stuff, but it wasn't enough, obviously. So his bag gets cut into bunch of stuff gets stolen. Um, and of course, like when you're on a trip like this, you'd need everything that you have. Everything is carefully, you know, um, curated all mm-hmm. of your gear, everything you have. So we kind of just went on like a war path and we convinced these local kids to help us find this guy or like try to figure out what happened. So <laughs> I guard the bikes, Jeremy and Alan go like take out their machetes, go running into the jungle <laughs> and actually found a hut where this guy had stashed everything. So he took a lot of stuff. He probably stole about $3,000 worth of our gear. But we found things like our ice axes, our ice screws, our pickets, stuff that he didn't, whoever stole this stuff, he didn't know uh, what it was. Mm-hmm. So we got a lot of critical stuff back. But um, then because we had all these things stolen that we needed, a friend was flying down to South America and we bought a bunch of the stuff, you know, replaced the stuff and had him uh, bring it down as his check bag. And uh, we met him at the airport and kind of replaced everything because it's just impossible to ship something down there, right? Like, how do you ship something from America to Colombia or to Peru? So he wasn't, he wasn't coming down to see you guys. He was just happened to be coming down there? Right. We just sort of did that anyway. Wow. Or, or he, was, he was doing that anyway, so mm-hmm. it worked out. But a lot of times when stuff like this would happen, if we'd break down or um, like get in a bind, whatever, people from... ADV writer would reach out because Alan was publishing, you know, the trip as much as he could, as much as he had service, like writing and posting some photos. So we had this huge following of people that were tracking with us and would help us. Like guys would ship. I mean, we got parts shipped to like middle of nowhere all the time from awesome people that were following the thread. Yeah, that's great. It was so great. I mean, and actually like made a lot of friends from that. I mean, Alan, I think Alan more than me because he was sort of taking point on that. And then just a lot of friends from social media, like I would share stuff on Instagram or, or when stuff like this would happen, we'd be like, Hey, like, is anybody coming here? We need parts or like, does anyone know where we can stay here? And we just would meet awesome people and really helpful people through those platforms. And it was, it was awesome. I'm really grateful for Adventure Rider because, I mean, I don't know how we would have done it without them. <laughs> they helped us out a lot. And are you shooting photographs the whole time? Yeah. So I think like we had some support from different brands like Mountain Hardware. Uh, Revit was, gave us you know, anything we needed, which was really awesome. Great gear. Um, but kind of just like a lot of gear support. 
there I didn't want this to turn into like a big project because I didn't want to have my hands tied. I just wanted to do this trip at this time of my life while I could, you know, and not be stressed about like, oh, I need to we need to do this for the project, right? So yeah. I kind of just took photos as we went and uh a lot of stuff's been published in magazines here and there, but it's it never really turned into like a huge project or exhibition or show. Maybe it still might at some point, but I kind of just shot photos because it'd be a shame not to, you know? Um, and we're just trying to do the trip and be pure about it without selling our souls for someone else's agenda, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the tough thing with sponsorship, isn't it? You know, you, mm-hmm. and, and, and often, and we've talked about this on the show before, but often um, you have to really weigh up, is it worth it? Most times it's not. You, you get a, maybe a discount on, mm-hmm. on a piece of equipment right. or something like that, but then you, the obligation mm-hmm. you have after that, especially for a trip like mm-hmm. this. I mean, you guys got so much going on. The last thing you need to be is worrying about, I've got to tag this person in this photo and you got to tag <laughs> this company in that photo. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there was a little bit of that, but it was pretty, there was a lot of freedom for the most part. So I'm really grateful how it all turned out and grateful to my friends at some of these brands and connections and contacts that supported us. Um, you know, Moscow, Revit, Mountain Hardware, like on all the other people that supported in some way, shape or form. I mean, it, it made it awesome. You know, it, it was, it made it possible. Yeah, yeah. Just a little side curiosity. Why would they sponsor you? Why? How did you convince them to give you anything at all? Just three guys going on a trip. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, like I wrote a lot about it throughout the trip. I worked with Thermares pretty closely. They're part of Cascade Designs, um, and they gave us they like we had the sleeping bags, which of course like there was a. I mean, I could have a whole podcast on just the gear. I feel like because we had to be really specific with going from the jungle and then climbing something, you know, going to 20,000 feet, like how do you, and we don't have space to have a big sleeping bag, you know, space is so critical. So Thermarest really worked with us and um, kind of supported and supplied like some of these like really technical gear items, like sleeping bags and pads and ultralight stuff. Um, And the incentive for them was like I delivered, photo assets, like wrote, um, you know, series of stories for them. So kind of stuff like that, like a lot of kind of editorial type stuff. And then, um, I think they were, a lot of people were just like, wow, that's crazy. Like we'd love to support it, (laughs) but not really many strings attached. (laughs) Right. Well, it's different. I mean, there's no doubt different, but, but it's mainly, it's mainly hinging on your ability, I guess, to produce images and stories. Definitely. Yeah. And, and for Revit, you know, there's a lot of images I delivered and like some stuff I wrote for them. But um, yeah, I think that a lot, like, I don't think they're, I think that mostly the incentive for brands was just to like test out a lot of gear and then have like some stuff show up in magazines and online publications here and there, and then get certain photo assets delivered of, you know, the product or gear, whatever that was always natural because we're wearing the stuff every day, of course, you know, like right. using everything we had there, there wasn't really anything like manipulated or staged, I felt. So it, it was all pretty natural to deliver on this stuff. But like you said, I mean, having obligation is a tough thing to navigate because 
you just want to do your trip. It's hard enough to do the trip, much less like be thinking in terms of how to deliver and like manage these expectations. Yeah. Especially when things get stressful and then on top of that, you've got to, you've got to deal with these commercial aspects. One thing that just came to me is you were, you were talking about the Thermarest and you were talking about, you know, being in the jungle and then going up to a peak. When you said about packing gear, I I like packing gear for climbing. I'm I'm thinking things like ice picks, I'm thinking rope and carabiners and all those different little things that that you might carry. But what I forgot about was you got a full set of winter, like serious winter clothing and then winter camping gear oh, yeah. that you've got to take with you. That's, that's a ton of bulk. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it was, that was part of what made all of that challenging. Um, but I mean, Thermaras has, I'm just convinced the most technical, like sleeping gear on the market. They have like, they have these really ultralight bags. That, so what we would do is like, we had this ultralight quilt for the jungle. And then, you know, we had hammocks, bug nets, all this stuff. Because you don't want to sleep on the ground in the jungle. Mm-hmm. And like these tarps that we'd use. Um, but when we'd go to the mountains, we'd combine the the quilt, which is a 20-degree quilt, with a 20-degree bag. Both super ultralight. Like pack up to the size of a soda can almost. It's incredible. Oh. I still use them all the time. Oh, yeah. So there's kind of like this de facto zero degree rating that we would use. And then we would use like a sleeping bag liner if we were really high or if it was really cold to get a couple more degrees out of it. And then, you know, sleep with all our puffy jackets and parkas and things like that. But yeah, it it was a very specific kit. Um, Like I said, like we were very minimal, like as minimal as we could afford to be with the Alpine kit, but we were still able to, you know, pretty much do everything we wanted, which is what was awesome. But yeah, I mean, we there was a lot that went into just deciding what to take and what to leave and like what we needed, what we didn't. It was it's technical stuff is a whole other world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're carrying everything with you. You're not getting resupplied on the way, are you? No, the only time we resupplied was uh, like when we went to Denali. We had negative twenty degree bags because you need those up there. Um, you'll get frostbite if you mm-hmm. don't. And then uh, we rode back down to like Mountain Hardware, shipped the bags up there for us, and we picked them up at a friend's house in Alaska. So we used the negative 20 degree bags, then they shipped us zero degree bags. And then, Gosh. like, before we crossed into Mexico, they shipped us these like really ultralight stuff. So it was pretty awesome working with them and, and um, them helping us out in that way. Like, you know, we'd be in the middle of nowhere and they'd next day air us something. Uh-huh. and because they knew we needed it and we you know so it was there's a lot of um great people that were helping us out in that sense but other than that we didn't really resupply other than when our stuff got stolen and we had a friend bring a check bag down you know right so what what's the ride like i mean and this is a big area obviously but what's the ride like through south america what what can you talk about in that ride Oh man, it's incredible. I, there's just so much diversity. I like take, for example, Peru is just an unbelievable country. You have every type of ecosystem, you have jungle, you have desert, you have mountains, you have ocean, like, and every combination in between the people are different and crazy. What I loved about Ecuador and Peru is that 
I felt like the countries are really proud of their indigenous heritage, whereas other countries seem to be a little embarrassed by it and therefore haven't preserved it as much. So Ecuador and Peru, you just have these like really Incan style people, like traditional people living in the mountains. And it's just incredible. They, they're like beautiful people. They wear incredible clothes. You know, they'll give you their last chicken, you know, just unbelievable hospitality and generosity. And you're just running into, and, and you can't speak, you know, we're not speaking the same language. We barely knew Spanish. The part of the, <laughs> the one big regret we have is that when we crossed into Latin America, we're like, oh man, we'll learn Spanish so fast. No worries. We don't even need to take lessons. <laughs> but that does not happen. <laughs> you need to invest in language if you're going to learn it. It doesn't come automatically, at least not for us. I'm sure there's plenty of people that it does come naturally for. So all that to say, you know, you're, you're hanging out and, and staying with these people that you can't even communicate with barely, but they're just willing to, you know, give you the clothes off their back because it's their culture and it's really beautiful. So yeah, I've, the landscape was really awesome in Chile. I mean, Bolivia is just unbelievable. You're, it's a lot of high elevation, just riding through like mountains and hot springs and there's you know, just lakes with thousands of flamingos in the middle of nowhere. Everything is just incredible. I mean, I don't even know where to start with it all. It's it's like a dream, you know, and it's just, it's just truly wild. Like if something goes wrong in a lot of places, nobody's coming to help you. And I love wild places like that where it's real and raw and, you know, it's, it's not like safe or, um, really manicured you know you're just really in the wild and a lot of the trip felt like that like a lot of the routes that we would take felt that way and and we try to get off road and be as wild as in in as wild of the places we could be and it was just incredible it's like you just have such a bigger appreciation for you know all these different cultures that you experience and like man some days you know we're riding it through 16,000 foot passes, there's snow, it's freezing. Like you're kind of with the mountain people, like these Incan style people, you know, like sheep herders, uh, just kind of almost subsistence farmers. And then in a few hours, you're at sea level in the middle of the jungle, just straight down. And then you go back up again. It's, I don't even know places like that existed. Like 16,000 feet to sea level, you know, straight down is, it's unbelievable. So it, I felt like it was just that every day down there. And man, I'll, it was incredible. It's an incredible continent. <laughs> what was the goal? What was the goal of the whole trip? Yeah. I think it was, you know, to kind of complete this like crazy idea we had. We're like, can we do this? Can we ride from? Uh, Alaska to Argentina without blowing up our bikes and like, can we even afford it? You know, like, is this, we talked about this forever. We kind of just, it was almost like a challenge to ourselves Two, It was like, I want, we want to climb as much as possible. I mean, we, I feel like we packed a lifetime of expeditions into this trip, you know, generally like you have one season, um, like one season a year where you can climb because you're going to miss it. You know, right. like you're going to, there's not, there's only like, you know, June to July where the it's climbing season. So 
because we were moving with these seasons, like we got to climb again and again and again in these major mountain ranges of the world. That was incredible. Like it would take years and years and years and years to pull that off otherwise. Right. So that was like a big goal of mine and ours was to, um, learn a lot as alpinists and like gain a lot of experience, stay alive. And then, yeah, I think I, man, I, I guess that was kind of the goal and just, and just like what I was saying earlier, like I just recognized the urgency of something like that. Like either it's now or never, you know, it only gets harder. Like, yeah, we're all broke and like young and don't really know a lot, but it only gets harder the older you get and the harder to pull that stuff off. So I, I just felt like it was this opportunity and a special time to do this crazy thing and hopefully come out of it alive. And um, yeah, I'm grateful for that. So kind of a workaround answer to your question, but <laughs> those were the goals. So you, you get to the end. What's the plan at the end? Do you, do you fly the bikes back? How do you do that? Yeah, it was definitely challenging getting towards the end. Um, Alan, like after the Solar de Uyuni in Bolivia, which is one of the highlights of the trip, just riding through the salt flats, it had rained or snowed up in the mountains prior to us getting there. So the, the salt flats were flooded. So for two or three days, we're just riding through like three to four inches of water. <laughs> Terrible for the bikes. And a huge mirror. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't even know you're moving. You have like no reference point. The sky blends into the ground, you know, it all reflects. And the only, like, it just feels like you're literally standing there, but obviously there's water flying up and blasting you in the face. So that is just incredible. So we had, we started having a lot of issues after that, understandably with the salt. <laughs> Electrical, you mean? <laughs> oh yeah. We, we ripped our bikes apart completely, cleaned every prong and tab and component, you know, as best we could. And then Alan started having like a pretty bad rod knock. Um, and he, it, once we start getting the Patagonia, it's just really miserable ripping winds. You know, you're like for just days and days and days, you're driving through deep, riding through deep gravel where you're just sliding all day. And all you can do is try to power out of it. And it's terrifying. So we had some crazy wrecks and like, it's just stressful riding and, and cold and windy. Like we're, there's times where you're, we're turned into the wind, right. And your our bikes are skipping, like, like literally getting pushed up by the wind and skipping on the road and downwind as you ride. Yeah. Like, yeah. like leaning, the wind's coming from the right. We're leaning into it and we're skipping, you know, trying mm -hmm. to stay on our side of the road while a huge bus is coming and we're getting pushed into it. So it was really tough. And then Alan, um, we're in Patagonia and <laughs> we hear it's just his bike go ping, 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 you know, like through a rod or something. And I remember that was so depressing. We're like, this is it. This is the end of the trip. I guess we're leaving him here. So we end up ripping into it a piece of his carburetor um, door, like slider had broken off and gotten jammed in his valve. Oh. So we've ripped everything apart, like pretty much rebuilt the top end on the side of the road, got it back together. Um, like it happened again after that. <laughs> so, so, uh, we, Jeremy and I were like, well, like, doesn't look like you can fix this in time. So we're just going to keep going. 
So we just kept going and left him. He like hitchhiked back to town. He's like, maybe I'll fix it. Maybe I'll take a bus down and meet you guys in Ushuaia. I don't know. We were kind of like, what else can you do? Mm-hmm. So he was able to patch it back up together, patch it up again and meet us. But his lower, <laughs> his uh, lower end was just about to fall apart. So we ended up running like straight 50. He caught up to us. He ended up running straight 50 weight in his bike <laughs> because uh, it was just, I mean, he ripped the top end off and you could just move <laughs> the uh, rod, right? Like ping, ping, ping. It was pretty bad. So he ran 50 weight. Um, we couldn't, he couldn't start it with his own battery because it was so thick and my battery is really bad. So we had to start Jeremy's bike first because it's really cold at this point. Jeremy had to tether my bike. I had to tether Alan's bike. So we'd all get started in the morning every day. And then finally Alan's bike would start and get warmed up because the oil's really thick. But then as he, as we'd ride for a few hours, like it'd warm up and it'd start pinging really bad. And it was kind of one of those things. He's like, am I just going to grenade this thing and send like, you know, like a rod through the block at any point. So he's riding with the clutch ready to just clutch it and, you know, grenade the thing so once it started getting warm we'd stop let it get cold again tether it back up to start you know the oil was a little thicker it was pretty chaotic but we all made it to ushuaia and um just started talking to local guys like hey do you want to buy our bikes you want to buy our bikes there's a weird tax down there like a hundred percent import tax it's pretty dumb so uh to buy something legally those guys are going to be spending you know 200 percent the amount of, you know, like they're going to pay you what you want for the bike and they're going to pay that much in taxes for import laws. It's pretty dumb. So we just sold our bikes for, I think I sold mine for 300 bucks to some guy. Um, Jeremy sold his for 500 bucks. Maybe, um, Alan's bike was pretty much toasted and, uh, he was, we were all pretty broke. So he just stripped everything and like packed it in check bags and flew back home with it and left (laughs) the frame there and just, gave it to some guy. <laughs> so he came back and like parted everything out, you know, just sold all the, like what, anything of value, like the ignition components and, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. See like bars basically just left the frame there. It's pretty hilarious. So I think, I think his part out paid for his plane ticket home, but yeah, that was, that was that. <laughs> so how long was it that the, the entire trip? It was 18 months, I believe. So, a year and a half. 18. I was 23 when I left and turned 25 like the day I got back basically. What happened to you? I mean, as far as a person, what do you, what do you, do you come back with a different outlook? Absolutely. I think I gained a lifetime of perspective in that year and a half. I mean, there was really challenging um, relational stuff that came up. That's stories for another time, but really tough stuff when you're living together, like as a, you know, unless you're like married to someone, you don't really spend time like that together Mm -hmm. hardly ever for that consecutive amount of days. Right. So there's just a lot of conflict and conflict resolution and especially doing things high risk. There's a lot of tension, right? Because people have different ideas and like, it's your life you're talking about. You really need to trust each other. So there was really challenging stuff. And I feel like Um, I just learned a lot about how to confront, um, and, and 
navigate like in relational situations. I just feel wiser and more mature about all of it. And also like, I think what the, what I really walked away from is like, life isn't about what you do. It's about who you do it with. And that trip was amazing because there's really challenging stuff with some people, you know, with some of us and then equally like rewarding and, um, uh, memorable experiences at the same time. And I think like as crazy as that trip was like what I remember isn't the things we did as much as like the memories that you share with the people. Like it, it, it I don't know how to ex- articulate it, but it's, it's more about the people than about what you do. And I think that's like something that's really stuck with me and moving forward in my life and, and still having dreams and passions and goals to do crazy stuff. I mean, hopefully, you know, I don't want to do something this long again, but I, I think I'm just getting started in my life with things like this. Um, but it's about the people more than it's about the experience itself. Like I, you need both and like just one, you know, like from coming from my hometown, um, when I moved to California, like people didn't really do stuff like this. And I was like, I just want to be around people that do it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think finding the people that are crazy enough to, chase your dreams with you or have similar dreams is just what life's all about. And in that sense, like I'm grateful for that trip and how it changed me to kind of see things from a different perspective and, and just, I don't know. Yeah. I felt 20 years older at the end of that thing, probably looked at too. (laughs) Do do you find yourself now when you're going to do something then, because you're talking about, you know, people being so important to you, do you find yourself picking maybe a little more carefully than what you would have before someone to do something with? Absolutely. Yeah. 300%. I think that I'm more discerning of people and um, like more direct. I mean, life is just really short and there's no, like we don't have time to, you know, like waste our time with, with things and people that are going to drag us down or like, we don't have time to beat around the bush and be passive or passive aggressive. Like, I feel like I'm just more direct with people, more honest, um, just, you know, value the, the people that like really, um, hold common ground with you more than ever. And yeah, that, I mean, I'm kind of struggling to articulate this, but definitely like, I, I just, yeah, I, I wanted. I, I would say I pursue relationships in a lot more intentional way, um, due in part because of that trip for sure. And how do you feel about solo tripping now? <laughs> uh, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Because there is something about solo tripping. Yeah. You, you've obviously went on rides and done yeah. things on your own. And when you do it, I know for mm-hmm. me, it, it sort of makes me wonder sometimes: is what is the point of enjoying something by yourself? You know, and and, and it lends mm-hmm. to what you're talking about. What is the point of doing something by yourself? Is there a point to it? Yeah, it, I think there absolutely is. It depends what's going on in your life, what season of life. You know, like I've done solo stuff where I just need to clear my head and be alone and think and write and, you know, just get away from stuff. So I'll drive down to Mexico and surf by myself for a few weeks. And I, there's definitely a place for it. But um, I think it depends on a number of things like your personality, like, what you need at that season of time. But I know for me personally, like life is more rewarding and fulfilling when you do it alongside people that you love and you have common ground and shared interest with. I think 
that there's just no, there's no substitute for that in my opinion. And maybe that's just me being really extroverted, but I do believe that like memories are meant to be shared and um, life really is about not what you do, but who you do it with. Mm -hmm. You just mentioned, you said the word seasons and and our individual lives have, has a season of its own that we go through your friends to get together like that trip that you did, the three of you, the chance of that happening again is probably slim to none. So it's, it's, yeah. So it's, it's like a one-off. What do you think of when you, when you, when you feel that, when you realize that that's, that's gone and and never attainable again? I think it, it helps me be intentional with my time. And now like with the things that I want to do, I'm like, man, now's the time, you know, like this stuff is, life is so fleeting and it happens so fast. And I don't, I, I would look back on that trip and as hard as it was and as miserable as it was physically, relationally, emotionally, I'm so glad I did it because I can sit here and talk about it and have no regret. Like I did it, even if it was, a, you know, like, even if I, even if it's really hard, like more pain than fun, at least mm-hmm. I know that I did it and I don't have to sit here and think about what if I had done that thing, you know? Yeah. And in the, with my approach to other things, like other dreams I have, I don't want to be at the end of my life or be a decade from now looking back and think about, Oh, what if, what if I had done that thing? Or what if I had taken that leap of faith or, you know? So I think it helps me be like grateful that I did take that leap um for this for that trip and then be really intentional of like life happens fast and i want to pack as much as i can into it you know while i can (laughs) and i I think i've had a lot of second chances with close calls like um avalanches and on you know off bikes and all the things that i could have died so everything just feels Uh, I just feel really grateful to be alive and it gives me a fire to do as much as I can while I'm still alive. Right. I've had, we've all lost friends and people we love and, you know, like it's pretty incredible that I get to be alive, living, you know, in a country where you have opportunity to do things where coming from war zones where I've been, they don't have that opportunity. So I just feel really grateful and really fired up to, take advantage of the opportunities that I have and not waste them, you know? So as, as far as motorcycle travel though, do you come out of that trip, you know, maybe somewhat removed from the trip and, and are sort of fired up about motorcycle travel or have you had your fill? Oh yeah. I mean, I did a big, I did like a week long trip on Harley's right after I got back. Um, I've done, more dual sport, you know, several week long dual sport trips. I love riding. I, I'll never do something that long again. It's just too long. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, well, I love motorcycles and I just wish I had more money to buy more of them and keep the ones that I have running. <laughs> All right. Well, as long as you love motorcycles that much, I doubt you're going to have the money to, for anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that matter. That's ho- what I'm realizing. Yeah. But yeah. hopefully you do. I mean, hopefully uh, you know, <laughs> life works out uh, for you in, in an incredible way. James, it, it, was, it was so much fun to sit and talk with you. Thanks so much for sharing a bit of your story. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for 
having me on and chatting. It was it was fun to reminisce and uh, chat with you. James Barkman just in out of the surf his website is jamesbarkman.com we've got that link as well as some great photos that James uh, sent to us in the show notes for this episode at our website adventureriderradio.com I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and the Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you for listening to the show. Thank you so much for that. Hey, this show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We would really appreciate it if you consider supporting Adventure Rider Radio. Anything $10 or more gets you a sticker for your toolbox, your pannier. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw Show. And the Raw Show is our other show that we do that comes out once a month, comes out on the 21st of each month. It's a separate feed. You need to go where you're finding your podcast and search for it there, Adventure Rider Radio Raw, or just go by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on that. As a matter of fact, if you go to our website and click on the Raw section, you'll see um, all the people that are involved with Raw with their the write-ups about who they are and et cetera, et cetera, and all the links and things like that. All the website, adventureriderradio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I sure hope you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I will talk to you next week. I'm Woody from Woody's Wheelworks and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 